0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Earlier in my career in higher education, I was a head coach, first of two sports, field hockey and lacrosse, and a faculty member at a Division III school, and next as a field hockey head coach at a Big Ten school. I had great coaches in college and in the Olympic training program, and I wanted to pay it forward. Coaches can make such a difference in athletes' lives. Today, though, coaching has changed dramatically. There are pressures at every level whether it be Division III and using athletics to drive campus enrollment, or Division I, where the expectations to win surround the coaching staff almost every waking moment. But for Division I Olympic sports coaches, there's a third pressure lurking in the back of their minds. Will my sport be dropped to accommodate the growing spending for football and or the financial pressures as a result of the pandemic? Recognizing that there is greater strength in banding together, the intercollegiate coaches association coalition which has a great website called savecollegesports.com launched in spring 2020 the group is comprised of 21 different collegiate and amateur sport organizations my guests today are two of the leaders of that coalition greg Earhart and kathy deboer kathy is the executive director of the american volleyball coaches association and Greg is the executive director of the College Swimming and Diving Coaches Association of America. Both have worked to represent the interests of hundreds of coaches and teams. Kathy and Greg, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having us, Karen.
2: Yeah, no, it's great to be with you, Karen.
0: So, Kathy, let's start at the beginning. Take us back to the early days of the pandemic pandemic in March of 2020 and the state of college athletics at that moment, if I remember correctly, it was the Ivy League who canceled spring sports first. And of course there was no March Madness, but take us back.
2: Yeah, so really the first thing that that jumped into our wheelhouse um, as a group of executive directors of coaches associations, uh, Karen, was, was either late um, March or early April, uh, when there was a letter uh, from the group of five commissioners to Mark Emmert um, that somehow leaked out uh, and asking him to bring to the uh, Division one leadership um, a four-year suspension of the sports sponsorship, minimums. So in Division One now, if you play football, it's 16. If you play BCS, if you play FCS football or don't play football, it's 14 sports. And this was a proposal to say, hey, for four years, let's take this down um, to 13 sports. And this, of course, w- was way more than a shot across the bow for us. This, this was a cannonball falling in the middle uh, of our boats, um, in that there, we knew very very little about the pandemic at that point. We knew March Madness was canceled, but we didn't know what was going to be the other, um, what was going to be the other fallout. And this was, oh, okay, folks. Here's what's going to be the fallout: is is administrators are going to look at their athletics departments and they're going to look at which sports they they can try and and get rid of. And so. That, that was a really scary time and we banded together with something that all of a sudden all of us could agree on that the, and, and started to save our sports um, through the Intercollegiate Coach Association Coalition and, and did fight off. Uh, again, credit to Grace Calhoun and the um, Division I folks who then made the statement saying broad-based sports programming is in our DNA, we're not going there. Uh, And so um, that was really what I remember from March and April.
0: Greg, how about telling us about the swimming world in 2020, it was supposed to be an Olympics year in Tokyo and the preparation for many Olympians is heavily dependent on college programs. What was happening in that moment?
1: You know, not much. I think the easiest way to describe it was just almost suspended at animation, you know, the the season was suspended and I, I just, It's funny to think that this is almost two years ago, but we were hosting our national championships. And I turned to our staff and I said, we're going to get through, but I think the women's NCAA meet next week is going to get canceled mid-meet. I don't think there'll be a men's meet. And 24 hours later, uh, we were the last college sporting event to take place in 2020. And we did time trials as long as kids wanted to do them that night. But we we were told by the host that you got tonight and then we're shutting everything down. And then, you know, from you look that, so you suddenly take everybody out of their, their routine and, and our coaches and our athletes are used to routine they build on routine. And everybody turned their eyes to the Olympics and you kind of have to work bad work. So USA swimming is waiting on the IOC. You know, the swimming world is waiting on USA swimming. What will happen with trials? There's just a un- sense of uncertainty at, it, at every level. And as we look at it now, I think, the thing that's the takeaway is just how emotionally challenging is it for something like that we we often talk about how tough it is for student athletes to transition after their career ends but what happens if your career was just pulled out from from under you and you know how or how do you how do you train when you don't know what the next competition is how do you how do you coach and recruit when you're suddenly thrust into a dead period it was just a A great sense of suspended animation. I think for our coaches, I think for us as an association, you know, Kathy's right. Like we were, we were, we were hitting the ground running in terms of just making sure that we're taking care of everything that we need to take care of and making sure that we're putting up sandbags because we knew that it was going to be a challenging, challenging environment.
0: So, uh, for both of you, share with us, and with our listeners, the kinds of conversations you were having with your membership throughout the spring and summer. At that point, the NCAA was only able to deliver one third of the normal revenue distributions to schools from March Madness, leaving many schools with massive deficits of 20 million, 30 million, 40 million, or more in Division I. Uh, Kathy, you want to go first?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things uh, that that is a constant challenge, Karen, uh, for the ICAC is to fight the very, very human instinct to go into a Hunger Games mentality. There are limited resources on even the richest campuses (laughs) and sports compete for them with each other. And our coaches hire us to represent our sport and to lift it up, not to say, hey, let's all cut back together. What? You know, oh, I can't because of this. We can't because of this. Um, so, So we spent a lot of time with each other talking through, You know, what were the what was the messaging about keeping our folks calm? And I will tell you, after we were very much reassured by the statements that came not reducing sports sponsorship, we were still braced for a bit of an Armageddon, which we which didn't come. Now, every one of us lost some programs. I don't think there's any Olympic sport that went unscathed. Um, in in that summer and fall. And when Stanford dropped 12 in a day, we all stopped breathing. Um, you know, we did in men's volleyball, I know wrestling, I mean, we just all stopped breathing. Uh, because here was a power five that was saying we can't afford what we're doing. Right. It fortunately did not start a domino effect then. And as most of your listeners, I'm gonna guess, know, then what happened with fundraising and the increase in endowment that happened through the pandemic, Stanford has since reinstated all of those programs. They never actually ended up dropping any of their sports. Um, But we were certainly preparing our people on the women's side, you prepare your people with here is what Title IX means, this is where your school stands, here's where you go get the information and the data, and you prepare all your coaches to make an argument of where they're bringing their student athletes and their sport are bringing value to the campus. Greg, how about
0: that? Go ahead.
1: Kathy hit the nail on the head. The value is the the message that we are providing, and it's it's not a new message for us. It just took on greater urgency in this in this environment. For so many of our our coaches, you know, you, our identity is tied up in our competitiveness. So we specifically work to remind our coaches of the value that they do and, and can bring to an institution. So we had coaches calling perspective students that worked athletes we had coaches that were cutting their budgets to the studs you know we also reminded coaches that they are among other things really mental health experts they just in the area of stopwatch and whistle. you know they're very valuable to the, to the just the ability of students to thrive on campus and i think one thing that we did is we we wrote out a, a note to every President, every faculty uh, advisor, every athletic director, just saying, listen, we know you're you're hurting. Like we we are going to do our part to to shoulder the load, but we just want you to know that. Hey, we want you to know that we're we're here to help each one of us on every one of our campuses. And responses were were amazing. You know, not not a single one emailed back to say, yeah, we're really proud of our our Olympians or this that or the other thing. It's like. Coach So and So is such a tremendous leader for our our young men and women during during this time, and you know something that we've always admired. And so it was it was good because the messaging that we're trying to take out is getting to the coaches, and it's being seen. That value is being seen on the campus level, and so it was. If, if, if there was anything, it was it was a feel good moment when you open up your email every day and you get a. Uh, an email from, you know, Lawrence Bacon at Harvard just saying, you know, yeah, we're really proud of our coaches and what they bring. And, and this is a, a trying time for, for all of us because, guess what, we're, we're just athletics, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Institutions across the board were, were hurting, you know, when suddenly sending people home and, and not capturing the revenue from tuition or room and board or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, there was just nowhere for athletics departments to go uh, to try to be rescued financially because the institution was hurting as much as the department was. You know, there were some wild estimates of $80 million deficits, $75 million deficits. Fortunately, most of those didn't pan out to be nearly that much, but there are still deficits. So. Looking at 2022 and, and going forward, how has the coalition worked together to continue to address the endemic part of this uh, reaction versus the pandemic part of the reaction? And either one of you can go first, it doesn't matter.
1: I think it, you know, it's, it's challenging in some ways. So, you know, when we had everybody threatened by the group of five commissioners that, that Kathy talked about earlier, you know, everybody gets religion when you know that it's, it's real. And suddenly we had, you know, I think there's 22 different sports that are part of our coalition and everybody came to the, the table because everybody realized that we're much stronger together. Um, it's pretty tough to sustain that over time, especially given that, that we, we each come from a different, a different realm. You know, I, I have, Two other people on staff and that's pretty good we have some of our coaches coalitions that are volunteer based and then we have some that that have a team of you know kathy what do you have like 40 people on your staff something something like that or nine you know (laughs)
2: it's a lot compared to compared (laughs) to most so
1: but 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 i do think what we realize that we're stronger together it it is a challenge to keep that sustainable throughout much much as we've seen in the pandemic, you know, what was it? You know, a year and a half ago, we were talking about two weeks to flatten the curve, and people were able to get on board with it. And here we are, two years later, and they're like, you know what? That curve is—we've already gone past that curve.
2: <laughs>
1: so it, <laughs> it it's, feels like it's we're a, a It's a little bit of a challenge.
2: Yeah, but I think some I of think it. We,
1: oh, I was just going to say, I, I think we all realize that. that is that it is a Hunger games mentality. What makes swimming valuable on a campus is holds true for wrestling, holds true for volleyball, holds true for soccer, holds true for equestrian. You know, we're we're doing some great things on campus. And so we are stronger together and we work to support one another and share data. We share best practices because ultimately that makes for a healthier atmosphere
2: yeah, I think the other thing that we we've we're getting we're learning to do is find the places where we all do have similar situations. So we dove a couple of years into recruiting regulations, and we found, boy, that was a great way to blow us all apart uh, because nobody wanted the same things um, because of calendars and ages and when kids mature and time sports versus um, non-time, it, it was a mess. But okay, so 21st century coaching skills. (laughs) We know now everybody's going to need to be a fundraiser. Coaches are going to have to learn to uh, engage their community, engage their alums, um, engage the people who care about their sport on the campus, off the campus, who have been members of their teams, uh, and how do you fundraise because the new reality will, will be that, that raising part of what you need and raising a bunch of what you want, maybe raising all of what you want, uh, is going to be on you. And so, so we've partnered with some groups like that. We also tried to, everybody is dealing with mostly the unknowns around nil. Um, And so, you know, we tried to, we did some programming on on those kinds of things, but so as to find places, yes, where we can help each other uh, be better at things that we were all doing individually, we were all trying to teach our people how to fundraise individually, and it's like, okay, can we do this collectively, Um, you know, uh, NIL is going to be different uh, for different athletes in different sports, but the principles and what's happening in the space uh, it is the same. And so those are the things that we've carried forward. And then as Greg has pointed out, mental health. Now we don't have any silver silver bullets to it, but first we realized that we had to help our coaches keep our kids from cracking up. Now we also realized <laughs> that we have to help our coaches keep our coaches from cracking up. And I'll, I'll bring one other thing into it that none of us anticipated was, the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020 and the reckoning that would was needed and happened around that in all of our communities around how we were dealing with opportunity and race and coaching and those conversations. So again, these were places where we were all similarly situated.
0: You know, I, I one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys was, was it like herding cats, you know, trying to get 21 different coaches associations, but it sounds like you really worked to find some common ground where you could all agree, and I, I, I completely understand the desire to keep the mental health of the athletes first, do you have any recommendations for campus senior leaders who are also concerned about the mental health of their staff and what you've been doing with the coaches to help them stay interested in the profession, stay in the profession, not to get burned out, to still have the passion for the game. I'm sure folks would love to hear those kinds of ideas.
1: I I can tell you that this is something that is, I don't want to say an looming impending crisis in our sport, but you look at the labor market right now and traditionally in athletics and coaching it's easy for us to eat our young you know you have somebody graduate they go into coaching for a couple of years you depend. pants and we're not talking about folks that are offensive coordinators that's a school they're paying the dues and they're not making much money and after a couple of years they decide this isn't what i want to do or the sport decides you know maybe this isn't the best, best thing for you or the other way you like, i'm all in on this i'm gonna nobody in Swimming or Wrestling or all signed up to, to get rich by this. What we're seeing is, is if you, this hiring environment, if you're walking out of college, you can walk into a really good paying job that has less hours, honestly less reward than coaching, but we're getting that, that pipeline. And I think where that frightens me is, let's, let's be honest, we, we talk a lot about student athlete experience and it's important, but you start to think about who has more of a responsibility for student athletes experience on campus than the coach, and so if the salaries aren't there, and you're going through a new coach every three years, you never get the traction just to have a a team, just to have a base of recruitment, you know, otherwise you're having to relearn all over, you know, you don't have the lasting connections. I think I Like say said, there's kind of a hierarchy of, of uh, loyalties to somebody. You know, if you've gone through and you've wrestled at Iowa, you're, you're going to be loyal to Coach Brands first, and then you're going to be loyal to the athletic department and the wrestling team, and then you're going to be loyal to, you know, something else on campus, and with a, a place where you proposed to your, your now wife or something like that, and it goes down finally to the, the annual giving card, but it's, it's the coach that creates that connection first and foremost, and it's there's just so there's so so valuable to. to what we do, and if, if we can't retain coaches, then what happens is we just have, we just have a, a not we just don't create the roots both within the Community, but also within the, the school.
2: Yeah, yeah and then what? Cool. What we did also, or what we try to do, is is build because Greg is right. Coach, coaching is one; it's a lifestyle. Right? It's not a job uh, because it just takes too many hours and it takes too much emotional investment. Um, for, from it takes too much passion, um, and so so you have this lifestyle, and then you're alone. And so we did um, lots and lots of. And I know coaches did it on their own where they did meetings with each other. They did Zooms. All right. Um, We have had coaches committee uh, meetings and we had them more frequently instead of having them once a month. We had them every two weeks. Coaches got together with their colleagues in their leagues who they're usually trying to beat their brains out. But they got together on Zoom calls. I mean, (laughs) we said there were there was more crying in coaches meetings. In the, in the during the pandemic, that at any time during the fifteen years that I've been at the ABCA. and some was it, some of it was around the hard conversations, this racial reckoning that we were going through, having to look at ourselves differently, having to look at how things that we had taken for granted that were painful and hurtful to others in our community and then there was just the you know moms with kids at home trying to do education while they're also trying to stay on zoom with their teams um, uh, you know um, yeah, loneliness uh, in the coaching community. And so how could we put them together? And I, I'd love to tell you, boy, we came up with six silver bullets and they all worked. We didn't, but we did work very intentionally at trying to keep our community talking to each other. Our mentor-mentee program went way up um, as people just wanted to have somebody more experience in the community uh, to talk to.
0: That's all really
2: I think it really stuff. was
0: kind yeah. of...
1: There, there was kind of a kumbaya moment where we had coaches. I mean, nobody fought about anything. It was, it was great. You know, people and, and the number of coaches that, that said, you know what, when we get back to, to normal, I, I'm not doing this or I am doing this differently. And, and in some cases they have, in some cases, they're part of the great resignation. And in some cases they're like, let's get right back into it. It's uh. You know, but I think that's what happens when you work with supremely competitive and passionate people, too.
0: Makes sense. Let me shift gears a little bit and say um, your your organization certainly has expressed your concerns to the NCAA uh, about how sports are financed in particularly in Division One. But I think the FCS uh, example brings up a good point. What do you want senior campus leaders, especially those with direct oversight of athletic departments, to understand about the current imbalances that exist in the ways college athletic departments are currently structured, greatly dependent upon football and basketball to drive revenues.
2: Well, we one of the things that I think we collectively talk about quite a bit is we want we want people to be able to do the math right. Okay, so when you have a team uh, of of twenty or twenty five. 15 to 20, many of those students are paying a significant amount of their own way. And that needs to go into the calculation. The other thing to look at is with enrollment now across the country dropping uh, because of the smaller number of college students. And as Greg has pointed out, because of the easy access to jobs, college enrollment is going down. And so there are a lot of colleges and universities, even at the division one level that are dropping enrollment quite consistently. And intercollegiate athletics is a way to bring students to your campus, not just the students who are on your varsity team and not just the ones who are on scholarship. So you have the walk-ons that are fully funding their own way. But you also have summer camps, that is bringing a lot of kids to your campus, some of whom are gonna go to your campus. You also have this person out there going all over the country, traveling more than anybody on your faculty, maybe your deans do this much travel, who is out there bringing your brand to the rest of the country. It's certainly to the rest of the state and to the rest of the area. when you cut sports, I mean, there's, there's lots of pro formas out there and, and numbers that it's easy to show that when you cut sports, actually, at times, the institution is going backwards. You're cutting sports to save money, but you're actually cutting students and your entire institution is getting smaller. So you're trying to grow your revenue by cutting off your students. So some of it, you know, is, and, and we want to actually talked about it yesterday, you know, prepare a white paper that we can send to college leaders to show with this argument and to show how when you're valuing your athletics department, please put these things in the mix.
0: I wrote an, an article for Forbes about four or five months ago about that very topic. I took the University of Michigan's field hockey team and figured out the average in-state and out-of-state tuition based on the rosters and how much tuition most of those student-athletes were paying. It was over $800,000 that those those athletes were paying to the institution that was not being accounted for in the revenue. So I understand exactly what you're saying. It, re- it really makes a lot of sense. Greg, what are your thoughts? I,
1: I mean, that, so my background is actually in economics. And I think one of the things that Stands out is, is you really do want to have a true accounting, not just of the costs, but, but of the revenues. And I think schools do a good job of ensuring that they're not just running charities, but you know, at the end of the day, we're still an educational in, endeavor. But to, to Kathy's point, I, I kept track of this, and and last year is I should say 2020, um, the number of teams that were cut. Um, Cost about sixty-seven million dollars across all these sports. They generated about ninety-two million dollars. And, and so, when you think about sports, and you think about what that does, our, there's you know we, we often hear the the phrase there's four hundred thousand NCAA student athletes, and most of them go pro in something other than than sports. Well, most of them also don't get scholarships, and so they represent close to 90 billion dollars in tuition revenue not to mention the other perks that you get as kathy mentioned you've got a coach that goes across the country to, to look at a recruit you have the lower cost of acquisition to to get new students in there you get the loyalty of of students that will give over time you know and I, and I think we can talk about the front porch all we want and and i think some people will say well that's kind of what football does but you know kathy mentioned athletic camps you know, that has a thousand soccer players come on it during the summer for camp. Just to get an impression of some of your best possible ambassadors you can imagine for the for the institution. If you have swimming lessons, you know what what better person do you want to have presenting your school? And every time I go through an airport, whenever I see a team, I always kind of i sit and linger just to kind of see how they're conducting themselves because guess what? They're, they're building the brand for the, the university. I've, I've never seen a, a student athlete misbehave in, in, in an airport. You know, most looking at their phones, but they're all looking <laughs> the same boat. And so I think about the value that these sports bring to campus. You know, let's, let's not give lip service to front porch aspect. Let's, we can actually measure these things. We absolutely can, can measure these things And and we should, because if you do, you will see that the investment more than pays for itself.
2: But we need to be clear eyed too. Yeah, we need to be clear-eyed too about what what where student recruitment I mean, so maybe this is a little counterintuitive to be coming from the volleyball coaches, which is a sport that is largely um, you know, is women's sport in this country, but All almost all campuses are struggling to find male students. And and we know that having the opportunity to play on a team is a hook for um, a male coming to making a decision on where they're going to go to college and even if they're going to go to college. And as we see the numbers uh, changing annually, we're now we're at about 58% of our student bodies across the country are female. And I realize you have Title IX complications in this, but what we're seeing lots of growth in on the volleyball side in men's volleyball because it adds, you already have a gym, you already have nets, it's in a different season from the women, and it adds another 15 to 20 male students. Again, many of them paying their own way with only 4.5 scholarships maximum for men's volleyball. Paying their own way uh, to to be part of your campus, and those those are numbers that, and we're seeing that growth in across sports.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So, in the last uh, maybe year, the NCAA and the USOPC have tried to work together to deal with this um, pipeline of athletes, because there's all there was a fear there for a little while that we would lose the pipeline between colleges and the Olympic the Olympic games and particularly Americans love to see our athletes on the podium. So have there been ideas about how to address the constant need for funding these pipeline programs?
1: You know, there's, there's so many different things that could be discussed in that area and so many different needs. The end of the day, I truly think it has to come from, from within. Um, no, nobody's coming to the rescue of Olympic sports on a college campus. And at the end of the day, our, our coaches are paid by the institution. And that institution is largely paid for by student tuition and fees. I mean, more so than it has ever been as a percentage of, of revenues. And so they have to be responsive to the their the and people that pay their paycheck. Um, so I, I don't think anybody's coming to rescue there. I think there are wares, ways where coach associations can provide the expertise within the college, collegiate environment to support things like the USOPC, our RGBs. Um, but I, I think it, we have to look to, within to help ourselves. Every, everyday sports is losing eyeballs, and youth participants. Um, if, are we going to be on the Olympic po- podium less frequently? most likely yes because if you look to paris now something like half the medals are going to come in college sports or come in events that aren't college sports you know rock climbing and dancing and surfing and, and skating so you know i, I think it, something like that we're, we're going to be successful because we have the best pipeline but we are most successful when that pipeline is broad and certainly in swimming we've seen that um, Kentucky, UC Davis, and Wyoming put people on the United States Olympic team, not just the international Olympic team. Um, and it's great. The schools pay for it, but I come back to it. You know, our, our coaches' salaries are paid for by the schools and they provide a lot more value than just the number of, of clicks and likes that you get from putting somebody on the, on
2: the team. I think the other misperception out there is between the two organizations w- with each other. You know, the NGBs think the, the NCAA prints money and the NCAA uh, thinks the NGBs ought to be carrying more of the load and the NGBs, many of them don't have, don't have any money. <laughs> you know, I mean, we are, again, we're an educationally funded uh, sport development system. We're not a government funded sport development system. Most other countries, the government pays to develop their sports. Uh, particularly at the elite levels. And in this country, it's all privately funded um, um, or educationally funded. And so I think the idea and the intention is good. I think there can certainly be more collaboration and cooperation um, between um, Uh, NCAA volleyball, for instance, and and USA volleyball, and we have several initiatives that we're working collectively on that are win-wins. But at the end of the day, the the USOPC and the national governing bodies are not going to be able to fund the umbrella that is necessary to keep competitive um, Olympic sports in our colleges.
0: Last question. And, and I guess I
2: would,
1: ahead, I would. I guess I would argue that I don't know. I don't know that they need to. I mean, I think it's it's proven that you know colleges are investing close to five point eight billion dollars in Olympic sports, and that helps our pipeline. But again, we bring so much more to the table than than just than just that. Um, and so I think it's it's healthy for us to be tethered to the institution and provide these experiences because that's what that's what motivates kids to. Go swim meets on the weekends, hoping that they can get us swimming scholarship or get into the college that they want to. Um, and guess what? Out of those, sometimes they make the Olympic team. Andrew Wilson came from the D3 school and made our Olympic team this year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you won't find any argument from me, I believe, firmly in Olympic sports and, and their value to campuses. So I couldn't agree with you both more. The last topic is a really big one, and we could probably have another podcast about it, but just for this moment in time, what would you like senior campus leaders to know about this emerging force, which is NIL, Names, image, and Likenesses, and the potential for the National Labor Relations Board looking for uh, prospective athletes who may, might wanna consider unionizing in college athletics? What are your thoughts and advice for senior campus leaders?
2: Well, I think that, you know, we thought of the pandemic and the shock of losing one March Madness, and let's hope it's only one, uh, you know, as, as, as a shock that to the system, how are we gonna overcome it? I think the future shock is much bigger and much uh, more uh, dangerous. <laughs> uh, and, and, and what I mean by it is, with the decision this past summer, 9-0, by the Supreme Court in the Alston case to say, I'm warning you people in college, what you're doing are antitrust violations and we're not gonna allow them to continue. Immediately after that, the NCAA was getting ready to pass uniform regulations about name, image, and likeness. And they immediately, wisely, at the advice of counsel who had just lost a case at the Supreme Court zero to nine, pulled back and said, okay, follow your state laws if you have them. Um, If you don't um, operate in good conscience and honesty and don't use this in recruiting, but you're on your own. Um, And It's chaos out there. I mean, you know, the the very high profile cases that we're seeing are, uh, you know, a quarterback in the transfer portal who's been offered a million dollars at three different schools if he'll transfer in. Um, You know, it's an absurd example. It's not happening to volleyball players at this point, and it won't be that kind of money, but it is but it is a huge threat. More and more, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, more and more of the dollars that are being generated by football and men's basketball are going to go to football and men's basketball student athletes, more of them. And if it becomes football and men's basketball employees of the University of Kentucky or the University of Michigan, now all bets are off because now there's no Title IX. Now this isn't part of an educational enterprise. Now this is simply professional sport within colleges. Um, and you know the, the, the NLRB uh, head has said, you know, this is something we really need to look at. Congress looks as if they have absolutely no interest in this. Uh, we know that when they start talking about something, it will take them six months to a year to two years to five years to make a decision on something. Well, they're not even talking about this at this point in time. And so, yeah, the 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 things that we started talking about, about value in Olympic sports, um, about fundraising being part of the job, uh, about Uh, partnering with with parents and alumni uh, to bring students into campuses and to show value. Those things are going to be very, very real for Olympic sports because the money that's been transferred in the places where it's there, and I I put that in air quotes here, although I know we're on a podcast Um, is there's a lot of places where there isn't any money coming in from football and men's basketball that that beats their expenses. But the places where it is that have been used to fund Olympic sports, that money, way more of it is going to go to student athletes in the future. And I think that is going to be a paradigm shift uh, that's that's going to be as traumatic as as anything that happened with COVID.
1: And, and I, I agree. I think every one of our programs is really beholden to football right now at the Division one level. Either we benefit through new facilities or additional staff and personnel, trainers, and all these types of things. You know, that's, that's one part. Or, or we have Olympic sports that are just bled dry as the department spends more and more money hoping that they can break through. And, and the truth of the matter is I think if there's a message to be taken Home for, for decision makers, especially those outside of the athletic department, that have oversight over it. So many schools are playing a game that they, they just can't win right now. And, and that was before NIL and NILRD decisions. You know, but every year, there's some team, a like Boise State or Coastal Carolina, that comes, rises up, slays a dragon. And every time they do, it gives a bunch of other folks hope. Well, if you look at it, the Snow pro Sports. League with more than thirty, thirty-two teams because there's some kind of competitive balance. Guess what? If you're in the halves, you don't we we don't have anything close to that already, um, you know. And and if you are among the halves, it's in your best interest to protect the halves. It took until this year for them to finally let Cincinnati in the college football playoffs and on their playground. But in the end, who did who did we see on Monday night? You know. Two teams that have a combined budget north of 400 million dollars. So the the divide between the haves and the have-nots is just going to be exacerbated. And I think in some ways it it may not be bad if uh, if it causes an athletic department to kind of rebalance themselves and say this is what it means to be a part of our our institution and our athletic department. Others it's going to be it's going to be pro. I mean it, it'll be paid and that's that'll be fine too. But it's, I think we always worry about the people that are trying to stride, straddle the fence. We want to be big time, but it's, it's just not sustainable, not, not over the long haul. But that doesn't mean you can't have a program or department that you're proud of, though. If you still, you still can. It's just not going to be in terms of ticket sales or likes and eyeballs and those types of things.
0: Well, um, I want to thank you both for for giving us some insight. I think it's really important to hear how coaches are feeling about this unusual time that we are in coming out coming through a pandemic, hopefully, looking at the financial uh, gap widening and widening and the, and the enrollment pressures and financial pressures that institutions face. And I think it's important for senior campus leaders to hear, from coaches associations so that they can factor in their opinions and thoughts and values that they bring to campus. So Kathy and Greg, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us some things to really think about. Thank you, Karen.
1: Thank you, Karen, for the opportunity.